From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. story was European Christians, essentially, right, who were looking for religious freedom, who ended up coming here to this country under the banner of being able to exercise this Christian freedom. And yet, literally from day one, as we all know, right, like, they had to find a way to make sense of first native genocide and then of transatlantic slavery, right, two of the most widespread, barbaric, horrible things we've ever seen. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Daniel Hill. He's the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church. Formed in 2003, River City longs to see increased spiritual renewal as well as social and economic justice in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago, and in fact, in the entire city of Chicago. Daniel Hill is also the author of White Awake, An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White, and 10 Out of 10, Life to the Fullest. Today we're talking about his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Pastor Daniel Hill, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. It's a true honor and joy to be here with you. So I want to start out our conversation by talking about the conversation itself. You and I in this conversation, I am a person who presents in our culture, I code in our culture as white. You present as white. I identify as white. You identify as white. I am a person who in our culture presents as male. You present as male. I identify as male. You identify as male. I present in our culture as heterosexual, and though I don't identify necessarily by any public label, that's a privilege that accrues to me. I'm not certain exactly how you uh, choose to identify, but you at least present in your writing as heterosexual. So these are all ways that we are presenting in this conversation. So so I want our listeners to be aware at the outset that we are having very specifically a white male heterosexual centric conversation about race. First of all, would would you be comfortable with the characterization I've just given of our conversation? Yes, absolutely and appreciative of it. Well, given that, why is it important or valuable to have a conversation that is presented in this way. Is there any value to having a conversation about race that is at the outset coded as a white male heterosexual space? Yeah, it's, it's hard to answer kind of in a very personal narrative kind of a way. You know, when I was initially doing this work, one of the convictions I made, even really at a faith level, I promised God that as all those social locations just mentioned, that I would never write on race. I didn't think we needed more white straight males writing on race. And so was actually, that was my assumed starting point that I shouldn't be writing or talking about it. And as I got over the years more involved with a number of different coalitions, you know, led by, you know, leaders of color, mostly black folks, and became part of their work, you know, they more and more started pulling me in, asking me to share from my perspective. And then I kind of shared them the conviction of why I wasn't 
but also realized that my conviction had been formed by my own perspectives. And so if they had a different thought, you know, I wanted to submit that to them. And they gave me kind of like a, a hopeful and a pessimistic reason why. And to me, these are both worth naming. What they said is realistically, where a lot of white America is, and I'm sure this isn't your lead, um, listener base, but yeah, I think we can probably appreciate this as kind of what we're up against at a broader level. You know, what they said is at a broader uh, sociological level, most white people have trouble, maybe even are resistant to listening to people of color when they talk about this, that there's all these kind of internal defense mechanisms that get released, you know, where, so I just say it crassly, like I was with, I was with a African-American leader recently and he said, you know, and he had me share in his group the place where he talks about this all the time. And I again, confess that like, it's always humbling for me to be asked to come in when he is smart about these things and certainly has more lived experience. And he says, here's the bottom line, Daniel. He says, when I say it, they go, ah, that's just an angry black man, you know, who's looking to blame his troubles on me, you know, but when you say it, they still don't like hearing it, but they can't say that's just an angry white man who's mad at white people, right? And so that's that, that's a long answer to say that's one reason. I think that I don't think we should ever be taking up space that isn't ours. I don't think we should be saying things that aren't already being said. But I do think there's a need for white folks to be kind of articulating some of these things that the leaders of color are saying. And then the other thing my mentors told me is they said, there's also a part like we don't understand the psychological journey of being white and contending with growing up in a system based on white supremacy. So there is a lived experience that you have is different than ours, which is simply as a white person, you've contended with this, right? And so when you can share from your own story, there's just touch points for people that will be different. So I may have way more understanding of white supremacy from the lived experience of being a black female, for instance, but you're able to relate, you know, in terms of how you've contended with that. And they would say, you know, we think there's value in that as long as it's continued to be surrendered and submitted to the voices of leaders of color. So I hold on to those two a lot when I'm continually checking myself and submitting back to leaders. Those, those tend to be the two reasons that it's continued to be affirmed. Like, yes, there's room for this as long as it's surrendered and submitted to kind of voices of color at the end of the day. So what I hear you saying is that, first of all, there are those who you refer to as mentors in the African-American community who would say that your experience as a person who lives swimming in the, the kind of sea of white supremacy, that's an experience, your approach to that is a different experience than their experience of swimming in the sea of white supremacy. And so you have a, you have a perspective that they don't share and that that's valuable, but also that when you speak about your awareness of that supremacy, that awareness of those biases and privileges that you benefit from, your voice is heard in white spaces with more, and I, I want to be careful about how I ask this, is it, is it that it's heard with more authority or with more genuineness than the African-American voice? What exactly is being said there? Thank you. That was a fantastic summary of both of those. And I, I would say the word authority. I, I too want to be careful because I don't think that's right. <laughs> right? Like I don't think of myself as having more authority. And I think that that actually contributes to the supremacist system. But in terms of the functional hearing of it, I think that's what many of them would say is that, yeah, the a voice of a white man in power is going to be heard at a much more authoritative level than somebody who's describing it for the experience of being black, you know, for instance. So yes, I, I think that is what they're saying. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Daniel Hill. He is the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church in Chicago, and we're talking about his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Well, we've spent a moment talking about some of the values or advantages of creating a a white male 
heteronormative space for discussing race. I now want to open up the possibility that there are some risks or downsides to creating a space that has this kind of center in the conversation when talking about race. So let's turn to that. What are some risks and what are some downsides to creating a very white male heteronormative space when talking about race? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think that's an insightful question as well. I mean, I would I would say it's probably similar risk to anytime any group that's societally powered, privileged, and holds some level of power when they're describing the experience of somebody who's not their own, just period, but particularly describing the experience of a group that's been historically marginalized and terrorized even. Right? I mean, there, there's just a tremendous risk in taking on that power to try to summarize what somebody else's experience is and to make suggestions as to what the white community in this case should be considering in response to that. So I think that's a profound exercise of power and privilege and one that has to be done with yeah, utmost care. Well, and so when we're looking at that and we're trying to balance the value and the risk of having these kinds of conversations, what is the calculus of that balance? I guess what I'm asking is, to whom are we most beholden when we're thinking about the ethics of having a conversation that really becomes a segregated space? Should we be thinking about the value to the participants, in particular the white participants, and the hope that maybe their consciousness would be raised? Are we thinking about the potential long-term value to African-American communities and communities that have been disenfranchised? Like, who are we really hoping to most help when we have a conversation like this? And again, a specifically white male heteronormative conversation. Yeah, I I guess a couple of my thoughts on there. For one, I'm really appreciative that you're highlighting all three points of the intersectionality of being white white male and heteronormative. I certainly want to always um, have a starting point, the critical importance of intersectionality. And at the same time, and really mostly speaking to the racial component of that within the work I'm doing. I think the other two are also really critical, but I happily submit to thought leaders who are doing much better work than this and who I'm learning from. In terms of within the context of that racial work, you know, I mean, that's, I, I, you know, I I worked, I, I spent a good decade or so making sure that I had Submitting a mentor started even sooner than that, but I'm t- talking about specifically before I ever kind of took on this work. I wanted to make sure I had a, a group of mentors that started within my local church community, but then more broadly within the city of Chicago, which is where you know I have Matt, as you know, and then even at the national level, to to be sure that anytime I'm doing this work, that I'm submitting it to them, that I'm being kind of sent by them, so to speak, into this work, and that I'm coming back with the kinds of conversations I'm having and being held accountable by them. At the end of the day. I want to. I'm hoping that there's a sense of shared perspective of what this variety, what this kind of broader group of leaders wants and hopes for the white community to be wrestling with. I would say it's both things. It's for the benefit, I hope, of those who are white as we're engaging with us, then for the long-term benefit of us being a different kind of country, a different kind of society. But I will say that if I had to aggregate the themes I hear from my mentors, the focus on Inter- white people doing the work to to continue to interrogate the profound depths to which white supremacy has affected us definitely continues to emerge as like a central theme that kind of those who I hope I'm held accountable by, you know, that's what they're saying, like, focus on that, like, to the degree that white folks can learn to see the impact of white supremacy on themselves, 
learn to see the way white supremacy has affected the way they see, see their neighbor. And then, of course, most importantly, how white supremacy affected the system and structures, right? Like that constant interrogation, that constant awareness, that constant going deeper and deeper and excavation of that. Um, that's really the, the important work and the work that's most easily jumped over um, on the way to, you know, doing things that we think might be helpful or something. So I, if I was going to say kind of what I hear kind of as an aggregate message from those who I'm held accountable by, that would be the emphasis that continues to come back. What I really like about that answer in its complexity, I mean, just something sort of jumped out to me, kind of like a neon sign in the midst of that answer. And and that's this notion of accountability and this notion of being sent. And so it's almost, if I'm hearing it correctly, it's almost like kind of having an embassy within whiteness, yes. white privilege and white power. Yes. And yes. It's, a, it's, it. it's a way of kind of advocating for another interest within that sphere of power. And you're always needing to report back to that other community yes. and have allegiance yes. to that other community. Now, as I'm saying this, I'm hearing you be very affirmative. What am I getting right here? I, 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 this conversation just at a personal level is very enriching because you're saying things back to me that I believe, but you're saying them in a different way. <laughs> I say it, then I'm so I'm learning from how you're saying it. Uh, that's just a that's just a really interesting way to kind of put it. Is it like an embassy almost? I, so if I crisscross with you, you know, I, if I come at it from a biblical perspective, one of my favorite stories is kind of the journey of the Apostle Paul and how you know God calls Paul to God's self and then. Paul has these kind of things that happen, but it's the city of Antioch where he really gets kind of trained up to be a pastor. And then him and Barnabas get called by God in Acts chapter 13 to go out and kind of plant these new churches. But it happens in the context of community, that God reveals God's self to this community. And the community says, we're laying hands on, on Saul and Barnabas to go out and do the work that we believe they're supposed to do. And so that's the imagery I try to carry with me. But I like this embassy too. I'm kind of crisscrossing right now. But from a spiritual lens, it's this idea of like, I almost like literally want like these mentors who I'm held accountable for to like lay hands on me and say, we believe Daniel should go out on behalf of us and continue this conversation that we're already having. And then he should report back to us and let us know how it's going and get instruction and correction and support and accountability. But I like mixing that with the uh, embassy kind of uh, um, idea, because I think that's getting to the same thing from a little bit of a different angle. Now, help to flesh out for my listeners, what does this accountability look like? Is it as clear as going back to a group of African-American pastors and lay people and making an account of your dealings in white spaces, or is it more subtle than that? No, it is. I actually think the more direct and transparent we can be on this, the better. Like, so for instance, like there's kind of in my neighborhood, I've got kind of a setup of how this works. Like if I start a little bit, I'll give one that's kind of more recent. Like, so I'm much more involved now, in the, you know, because you know, Chicago is obviously very segregated. So I'm on the West side of the city. There's kind of like a Latinx clergy network and there's African-American clergy network. And I'm particularly involved in the African-American clergy network. So what I basically say, there's three people in particular that lead that. So I consistently come back to them and say, I'm available if there's anything that feels supportive to y'all and like, I don't need to be like, if the most uh, strategic thing I can do is be sitting in the front row and listen to all the stuff you guys do, then great. Like, then that's what I will do. And if there's something more specific you'd like me to do, I want you to know how I'll do that. I'm going to basically do, I'm going to interact with you of what you think is helpful. And then I'm going to come back to you after it and say, you told me to do this. I tried to do it. How did that go? Did I say it right? Did the right outcome come out of it? If we do this again, should I do it differently? Like, I try to be really explicit about that. And they're appreciative of that, right? So more often than not, they do just kind of want me to participate in things. But there's been, you know, increasing number of like, there'll be a press release they want me to do, or they'll ask me to like make a statement on something, or they'll make me ask me to address a particular thing happening. And like, I get real clear with them. Like, I see you all as having the clearest vision of what needs to happen here. So you're inviting me to play some part in your vision. So help me be as clear as you feel like you can be. 
then I'm going to try to do that. And I'm going to literally come back and say, how did I do? Like, did I participate in a way you were hoping I would participate in that? And if not, I'm like, I, I want to have thick skin. Like I'm this, please tell me because next time I want to get it right. I want to do better. And so that would be an ongoing example of like building the kind of community where I'm trying to follow their lead, do it when they ask me to do it and then come back for accountability to see, you know, how well or not did I do and what you were hoping I would do. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel Hill. He's the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church in Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Daniel Hill. He is the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church in Chicago, Illinois. Today we're discussing his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Well, about halfway through your book, White Lies, you talk about being at a conference and you're asked by a pastor there, why are you doing this work? What got you into this anti-racism work? And the initial response that bubbles up as you report is Jesus. And there's some <laughs> laughter in the room. And then you're asked to elaborate. And I'd like to now ask you also to elaborate. When you say that Jesus has brought you to anti-racism work, what do you mean by that claim? I mean, this is a probably part where another aspect of social vocation is going to be kind of a key part of my story. You know, I, I grew up on the more conservative side of the Christian spectrum, one of the kind of cornerstone beliefs that was continued to be drilled into me growing up is that Jesus should be the center of everything, right? Like everything that we do should be pointing to Jesus. It should be because of Jesus. I mentioned that because that, that ended up becoming a big part of my faith crisis in my late teens, and early 20s, because I began to become increasingly exposed to the depths of racism, the depths of white supremacy. And I saw how, at least within kind of my side of the Christian experience, it was so rarely talked about. Like it seemed almost like people could totally believe and trust their lives fully to Jesus and like completely care less about racism, white supremacy. So that led me to, I couldn't stop when I was seeing white supremacy. So maybe begin to question whether Jesus was real, if you could really love this historical figure that Christians believe is the incarnation of God, right? Like, can I really follow this person if it doesn't have anything to say to white supremacy? And so that became a big part of my story because what I basically did is I started studying from people that were just from the broader part of the church tradition than what I'd grown up in. And that's where I really like, you know, so for instance, black liberation theology and Latino liberation theology became like very key sources of understanding the Bible in a different way for me. And, you know, the starting point of liberation theology is that that's who Jesus is, is Jesus is a liberator. Jesus sets people free. It often roots itself in the Exodus narrative of the Old Testament of delivering the Israelites from the slavery of the Egyptians. And so it would be hard to overstate how transformative that was for me at a personal level and at a faith level. And so I realized there was nothing incompatible about following Jesus and confronting white supremacy. If in fact, if anything, 
I believe you, if you follow Jesus, you have to do this. And I guess I honestly believe it's hard to fight for times if you don't believe in Jesus. You know, that's kind of a personal belief I have. So that became a real cornerstone for me is that the life and ministry of Jesus is my center point for how to understand the consciousness needed for white supremacy and the necessary resources for beginning to confront it. At several points in your book, White Lies, you gesture towards this interaction, and I'm going to characterize it and sort of ask broadly about it. So you talk about how uh, when you begin to say things like you've just said, that Jesus is what has driven you towards anti-racism work, sometimes you'll get a pushback that says, well, but now you're talking about social issues and you've veered away from preaching the gospel. We have a great commission that tells us to go and make disciples, and you're pulling us away from that discipleship into some political stuff. Stop doing that and just get back to the Bible. How do you respond or how should people who are confronted with that respond when this kind of criticism is brought to the kind of claim that you're making that Jesus calls us and compels us and, in fact, sustains us in anti-racism work? Yeah, well, you know, there's a more obvious answer um, that I'll just start with just because it should be stated. Is obvious, like when you study the life of Jesus in the four gospel accounts, he attends to social ills all the time, right? So at a most superficial level, it's just almost ludicrous that, that people so often make that claim. But at a deeper level, I realize that especially those who make that claim, they've been kind of programmed to make that claim. I think there's been, you know, borderline propaganda to kind of disconnect uh, Christianity from dealing with some of the complexities of white supremacy. So I'm coming back to just like the very fundamental ways that Jesus is described in the Bible. He calls himself truth. He you know, he says, when you know the truth, it will set you free. He says, when you know me as the truth, you'll experience life abundantly. And, you know, it can be a little bit odd subject to bring up, um, but, you know, the Bible also pretty consistently talks about the devil or kind of supernatural evil. And the word that's most often associated with supernatural evil is that of lies. And so at the most fundamental level, it's really, really the title of that book came from White Lies. At the most fundamental level, the forces of good is seen in Jesus as kind of demonstrated through truth, and the forces of evil are demonstrated through lies. When you really peel back what white supremacy is and what the system of race is, it's just one gigantic lie, really, around human value and worth and um, the powerful narratives that get built around that. And so what I basically say to people who say that is you mock your God who claims to be a God of truth when you disconnect your faith from the many manifestations of white supremacy. So I literally think you mock your God when you say something like that. There is so much in that answer. And obviously and clearly you get into the complexities of this in your book, White Lies. But there's one aspect of that answer that I want to lift out and ask more about. You said that you your impression was almost that people were programmed to make the claim that you're moving towards, you know, social issues and away from the gospel. When you said that, I, I heard a characterization that you make in the book about the blindness of the Apostle Paul. And this this speaks into something that we hear sometimes when people are talking about race and white privilege in America. There's a kind of learned ignorance around it. So I want to ask you to go deeper. What does this programming look like, this reflexive, almost inability to look at the actual facts of systemic oppression and in instead to kind of wave it away and go, no, 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 Jesus just loves everybody. Like, what? where does that programming come from, and how does that programming manifest specifically in Christian circles? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. So again, I'm, I'm going to give a fast answer because I don't think it's the most important one. I think there's something to be said for to be a subdominant cultural group in a dominant culture anywhere means you're going to see the dominant culture in a way the dominant culture folks aren't going to see it, right? So that's where I used to start my answer. 
But I just don't think that goes deep enough. That doesn't get to the programming piece. That's something that would just be sociologically true of any culture where there's a strong dominant culture. Those who swim in the dominant culture are going to have the most difficulty seeing it. Where I see the programmatic places, so I'll say one not so much religious, one that's more religious, at the non-religious level, when I describe white supremacy and when I think of what it is, I think there's all the very important sociological ways to describe what it is. But I really do, this is where I think the spiritual part is important. I see there being supernatural evil behind white supremacy. And same way I believe that there's a God, there has to be supernatural good. I believe there's supernatural evil, and I think it works through lies, protecting lies. And so I think part of the way white supremacy is designed is that it's programmed white people to learn to treat it as if it's not there. Um, I actually think that's part of the evil behind it is that there's kind of this like blindness is like uh, the primary strategy for it, right? Like it, if I can use one biblical passage here, it like reminds me of the first time sin is talked about in the Bible is in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. When Cain is getting ready to retaliate Abel for whatever he's jealous at Abel about, God warns and God says, um, sin is lurking at your door and it wants to have you. And it kind of uses this metaphor of like a predator that's like very dangerous, but that's attempting to make itself look not dangerous by kind of crouching or lurking or kind of shrinking itself. I think that's just a lot how white supremacy worked. It's like super profoundly dangerous, but the propaganda behind itself even is to get white people to kind of treat it as if it's not. On the religious side of it, I would say this is what makes the American story so unique compared to most other nations, even if it's, you know, got now a Christian kind of heritage within it. But our founding story was European Christians, essentially, right, who were looking for religious freedom and who ended up coming here to this country under the banner of being able to exercise this Christian freedom. And yet literally from day one, as we all know, right, like in order to justify the story of what they were doing, they had to find a way to make sense of first native genocide and then of transatlantic slavery, right? Two of the most widespread, barbaric, horrible things we've ever seen. And Christianity literally had to take root within a system where you had to make sense of colonial and even physical genocide, I would argue, as well as just all the barbaricness that comes with slavery. And so I say that to say it's like, it's almost, I I, want to use this term carefully because I know this is like not this term can be controversial, but it's almost hardwired into our understanding of faith in America. We almost, from day one, we had to learn how to disconnect this belief in Jesus from the barbaric and horrible social realities happening around us. And so I think that's been passed down from generation to generation. It's almost like instinctive need to create a separation between the faith that we long for and the hostility of the um, social unrest that's all around us. Well, we're going to dig deeper into that in just a moment, but for now, I want to make sure that listeners know that you're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking with Daniel Hill. He's the founding pastor and senior pastor at River City Community Church in Chicago. We're talking about his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Well, just a moment ago, you were talking about this kind of being almost the hardwiring into the Christian story that we're telling ourselves. That pushes us to an important aspect of your analysis in the book White Lies, and that's the whole way that narrative functions in our way of constructing these racial identities. So let's talk, first of all, kind of broadly about what narrative is and how it plays into your analysis, and then I want to ask some more specific questions. 
one of the people that we lean on so heavily in our church in terms of not only participating in their work, but just as a thought leader is Brian Stevenson, who's been around a long time, but has become a little more famous recently since uh, Just Mercy has become you know, a really popular film with Michael B. Jordan and uh, Jamie Foxx in it. You know, the work he does in Montgomery, Alabama is just profound. And, and um, in, in addition to representing for many years uh, folks who are on death row, he's now started two museums, one that tells the history of slavery and one that honors the lives lost to lynching, which they've, they're doing some incredible work of just unearthing all these stories of men and women who were lynched. They're, they've now documented over 6,000 people that have been lynched throughout the U.S. and are doing some really unique work around that. But what he has figured out throughout the years, and I think rightly so, is that you have to help people understand what's kind of at the root of all of it that kind of keeps this thing going. And so he uses this term, the narrative of racial hierarchy. He is really convinced that you can't understand the stem of what holds it all together if you don't really contend with this idea of the narrative of racial hierarchy. And it's a simple idea. It's just been profoundly, powerfully exercised. The narrative of racial hierarchy is really, I, I would call it the operating system of white supremacy. And it's this story that says, it's, 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 it contradicts the biblical story. The biblical story says human beings are created in the image and likeness of God and therefore have inherent value and worth. The narrative of racial hierarchy says, no, that's not true. Being created in the image of God is not the defining characteristic. It's where you're at on this racial hierarchy that's the defining characteristic. And so, you know, most, I think, race scholars would agree that th this narrative really solidified, you know, during the time of slavery to justify kind of the barbaric nature of that. And so the narrative has always had kind of whiteness at the top of the hierarchy, blackness at the bottom. So whiteness has always been seen as most human, um, most beautiful, most even divine-like. Blackness has always been what's been seen as least human, talked about even in scornful ways, Right. It's, you know, many point to, including Brian Stevenson, point to the three-fifths compromise of the Constitution as a way to demonstrate kind of a clear point in time where Black people are called three-fifths human, you know, in that compromise. And in a lot of ways, that describes the, the bookends of the hierarchy, that whiteness would be five-fifths human, Blackness is three-fifths human. And then, you know, over the years, it's his shift a little bit, but generally speaking, you know, Latinx and different Asian American groups or, you know, Middle Eastern groups that they're, they're assigned meaning based on their proximity to their blackness or whiteness. You know, Stevenson would say, you can't understand colonization without the narrative of racial hierarchy. You can't understand slavery without the narrative of racial hierarchy. You can't understand the current manifestations of incarceration challenges that we're facing. Or They all come back to the roots of this story, which is human value is found based on where you fall on the racial hierarchy. This is so powerful, and you're gesturing towards exactly where I want to go next, because oftentimes you'll hear Christians, and particularly evangelicals, but not exclusively evangelicals, uh, some of my, my Catholic brothers and sisters do it as well, they'll refer to America as a Christian nation. And when we're, we're, when we're talking about Stevenson's idea of narrative and these powerful stories that we tell ourselves, one of the most gripping moments of your book, White Lies, for me was it, right in the middle, you take 17 quotations from 17 different presidents throughout the history of America, and you show how this racialized narrative of hierarchy has been at the root and at the center of how we have described ourselves as a nation and as a people, whatever that means. But uh, just talk, talk to my listeners about, uh, kind of walk them briefly through that narrative. Why did you choose those 17 presidents? And what does looking at those 17 presidents tell us about the story that we have told ourselves as a Christian nation, supposedly? 
Yeah, I think it's for us to enter into the fight against white supremacy. We have to remember this thing didn't just start yesterday, right? And when new things come, it's it's they're not really new. They're built on those historical roots. And so I've been deeply impacted by Brian Stevenson and his tracing everything back. In fact, we tried to take an annual pilgrimage within our church to visit his two museums and just have people experience it. And it's really breathtaking, you know, when he you go to the slavery museum, for instance, and at every stage of historical development of slavery, he keeps coming back to how the narrative is what informed it. It's this deeply coded belief, not by extremist KKK people, by like the masses that viewed black people as inferior and therefore can make a justification for slavery, that viewed white people as superior and therefore can make justification for owning human beings or even lynching and stuff like this. And so I started doing my own work to just like document for myself initially before I would plan on being in the book of just you know, how consistently can you find this narrative being depicted? You know, you can do it through poets, you can do it through artists, you can do it through entertainers. But when I started realizing how nearly every president has like literally said something that assigns superior value to white people and inferior to people to black people, and that it doesn't, that it's not, it's irrespective of party. In fact, of those 17 or 19, whatever it is, I, I try to almost exactly go half and half Democrat and Republican because I think it's a myth to think that this narrative belongs to one party or has been exercised by either party. Um, instead, I think we have to see that this narrative is everywhere and has to be confronted on every level. And so it was so sobering for me to realize that starting with George Washington and then going through each of these presidents or even Abraham Lincoln, who many would you know, say did most some of the most important legislative work around race, but he was very clearly and articulate, uh, articulated this narrative of racial hierarchy. He literally said, I believe white people should be called the superior race. I believe black people should be called the inferior race. I think we have to organize ourselves in that kind of a way, you know, all the way to modern rhetoric where, you know, President Trump is like way more upfront about it. Um, but he, I mean, he, you know, I, I, you know, the one I use in the book is, I mean, you could pull so many from him, but when he says, you know, we need more immigrants from places like Norway and less immigrants from places like Haiti and Africa, shithole places like Haiti and Africa, there's like just nothing new about that, right? That's three fifths, five fifths, right? That, that it's it's what we've been up against at the very beginning. This narrative that says beautiful white places like Norway, we need more places from ugly black places like Haiti, or the entire continent of Africa, we need less, you know, immigrants from. Like, there's just nothing creative or new about that. It's the same lie we've been up against since the very beginning. And I think it's dangerous to just say, well, that's a Republican thing or a Trump thing. It's like, no, that's that's a U.S. thing, right? Like we have been battling this narrative since the very beginning. Well, okay, but then when you say it's a U.S. thing, I have to ask the follow-on question. If we look at 17 presidents from George Washington to Donald Trump and we see the consistency of this narrative, if we see that despite all of our efforts to pass amendments and laws to, to make a more just and equitable social fabric of our society, we still see these same problems cropping up again and again. Is there something in America worth saving? And by extension, is there something in Christianity worth saving? Or is is America, is Christianity so wedded to this racialized project that it's maybe beyond salvation? Yeah, I mean, no, no I, I mean, obviously, I'm just one voice. And I don't think it's beyond salvation. I mean, I think that we have to. The metaphor, as you know, I open the book with is from Dr. Willie Jennings, who's now a professor of archaeology at Yale University. But when describing white supremacy, he uses a really interesting metaphor. He says white supremacy is a parasite, who 
which is interesting because, you know, as you know, a parasite, a nasty little organism that attaches itself to a host, and it can only survive by staying attached to that host. And you get this kind of symbiotic relationship that's created between the parasite and the host. And so it's not only interesting to think of white supremacy as a parasite, it's interesting to ask, well, then what's the host? And he makes the case that white supremacy in the Western Hemisphere could not have existed if it didn't attach itself to the host of Christianity. And that it has continued to draw its lifeblood from white from Christianity, which of course gets back to your question: Does that can you save that? Then, well, I mean, I, that's just one way to look at it, the parasite thing. But to me, that's a helpful way to do it. Like, just because a parasite attaches itself to something doesn't mean the thing it attaches itself isn't worth saving. Right? It just means we have to do the hard work to figure out how to get that parasite out of it. And I think extreme reactions from on both sides. I think what some people do is they see the parasitic connection to Christianity and they say, well, therefore, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And while I understand that, I actually think it still is a little bit simplistic in its analysis that instead of decoupling the two, you just say goodbye to both. And then, of course, what we see, especially in the religious right, is the opposite to that. Instead of doing the thoughtful work to decouple and um, look to extract the parasite from Christianity, um, you just ignore it. And what you believe is the defense of Christianity, you're actually defending white supremacy along with it because you refuse to do the critical work. And so it has to be said, like, I still believe that God is God at the end of the day. And just because evil attaches itself to God doesn't mean that that it's unsalvageable. It just means that we have more work to do to kind of name that parasitic connection and start to really think together of how it gets removed. And I would answer that again more broadly to the U.S. project too. I think that it's a very parasitic connection and it's not going to be easy to pull it apart, but I think it's totally worth it to like really try to. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Daniel Hill. He's the founding and senior pastor at River City Community Church in Chicago, Illinois. He's the author of White Awake, An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White, and 10 Out of 10, Life to the Fullest. Today we're discussing his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you want to hear more of these sorts of conversations, please check out our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Today, we're speaking with Daniel Hill. He's the founding and senior pastor at River City Community Church in Chicago, Illinois. We're discussing his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. 
Well, a moment ago uh, in the last segment, you were talking about the view of racism and racialized narratives as a kind of parasite that operates both within the body of Christianity and the body of the American experiment. But you also are so spiritual in your view. You you think about the questions in White Lies in, in sort of uh, supernatural terms at many points. I wonder if we can also entertain the idea that it's not simply a parasite, but we're also talking about a form of demonic possession. And if I say that, first of all, are you attracted to that characterization of racism as a kind of demonic possession, or would you be resistant to it, and why? Um, I'm not exactly sure about resistant. Um, I think that's just such an enormous label, and um, people would just really hear very different things in that. So I think it would have to really be kind of teased out. I don't mean to like get into semantics. I, I certainly can be comfortable with like the influence of the demonic, the influence of evil. That's something I for sure see. If I'm being honest, that the, the risk in that is it makes it feel powerless, you know? Uh, and I don't think we are. I think that when you name lies and move towards truth, you move back into the, the position of being on the right side of good. And I want people to believe that we can stand up against this evil. So I guess that's my only hesitation with like possession kind of language. What, what's really helpful in, in your answer to that question is you've begun to kind of nuance a statement that you made earlier in our conversation where you talked about the role of supernatural evil. You said you, you believe in supernatural good. You also believe in supernatural evil. But here in, in stepping away from possession, you've given a kind of agency to the way that you think about supernatural evil. We're not beholden to supernatural evil. We're not in the throes of supernatural evil. We have a role to play here. And let me let me see if I can put a pin in what that role is, and you tell me if I'm on base or off base. So if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the things that supernatural evil calls us to do is to protect lies instead of protecting bodies. And just a moment ago, you said that one of the roles that we can play is naming the lies and getting towards the truth. So this is how I'm thinking about agency in the face of supernatural evil. But when I'm saying this, am I on the mark or would you say it in a different yeah, yeah. way? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and so then how do we begin to name the lies? Where do we find the strength to begin to cease protecting lies and begin protecting bodies? Yeah. So I'll give like a practical example. So um, one of my colleagues here at the church has her own social impact consultancy. Her name is Shanika Pickett, and her organization is called Alfred DeWitt Art, ARD, which is if I, it's all right to do a plug. I think she just does great work in helping organizations with that. And when she does work, and sometimes I join her in this, the first thing she does is talk about how dangerous it is when companies, when businesses have diversity and inclusion departments or diversity, inclusion and equity departments without talking directly about white supremacy. Right? Now, this comes like it's a huge shock because that's what everybody thinks is the right answer is to have a DNI department or DINE department, right? And of course, that's important. Like, it, 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 this, these can't be pitted against each other. Like, we need to do legislative work or programming kind of work that does create more inclusion. But you can talk about diversity all day and never actually mention the lie of the narrative. One of the points Brian Stevenson often makes, he uses just a simple gardening metaphor. He'll often ask this. He'll say, if you're a gardener and you pull a weed but don't get to the root of the weed, what's inevitably going to happen? <laughs> the weed's going to come right back up again, right? So he's like, I'm not saying we shouldn't do political and advocacy and policy kind of work. We should. I am. But we have to also realize that if you don't get to the root of the lie that continues to sustain all these structures, like they'll just keep reincarnating in different forms, right? So we have to attack it on both sides. We have to attack it on the policy side, and we have to attack it at the lie side. 
And so that's to me an example of like, even if a company's not calling it doing spiritual warfare at that level, when a company, in addition to doing diversity and inclusion stuff, will also say, we've got to name the lie of the narrative that sustains white supremacy and actually build that into the vocabulary of our organizational culture. That opens up a front on battling this. It's just different than the um, also really important diversity and inclusion stuff. So that to me would be an example like in the workplace where we're adding another dimension to this uh, work besides just doing the diversity and inclusion, which is also really important. This is so helpful because when I came to that chapter about diversity and the dangers of diversity that Ms. Pickett is naming, there's a quotation in that chapter that just blew my mind. And it's a quotation from Angela Davis. And I'm going to, I don't have it ready to hand. So if I, if I misstate it, please correct me. But my understanding is Angela Davis was basically saying, why would we want to be a diversity hire in a company that is implicitly or explicitly wedded to racism? Why would we want to be participants in a situation where we are always going to be disenfranchised. And so what what I'm hearing you saying is that diversity, and you say it very clearly in the book, diversity as an end rather than a means to an end. So explain for me and for my listeners what the distinction is there between diversity as an end and as a means to an end. So my experience has been, and actually it's, it's really pretty similar at an individual level too, but if we just keep it organizational level, when an organization, like it can be a church, it can be a business, but when an organization comes to the realization like, oh my goodness, we are primarily white, almost all white organization, right? Both in terms of hiring and who's there, you know, and who's, when that realization happens, then there's like, what do we do? What do we do? As you know, in the book, I call it the theory of change, right? Like the theory of change um, is that's consistent. It's like, oh, shoot, if, seg- if we discover that we're segregated, we need to change that. Then the theory of change is, well, then we need to become diversified. And so it's exactly the thing you're warning about with Angela, what Angela Davis says, right? Where instead of saying, why were we racially segregated all these years um, as a result of white supremacy? Instead, we just say we're racially segregated. So if we become racially diverse, then we can like exhale and say, oh, phew, um, clearly we're now a place that values all people. And so um, that's what I would mean by an end, like becoming diverse becomes an end. And then the organizational leadership take, tends to take the foot off the gas pedal and say, all right, like as long as we maintain a quota of diversity and we're hiring X amount of people or, you know, hit whatever benchmarks we believe have to be hit, you know, then we've arrived. As opposed to saying what I think should be the end is we're confronting the lies of white supremacy and the system that form because of that. And diversity is always better for confronting white supremacy than being homogenous, always, right? So it becomes a very powerful means to accomplishing that, right? Where you now have voices and talent and people positioned to attack the lies of white supremacy that you didn't have before. But getting those people there isn't the end. The end is confronting the legacy of white supremacy. This brings us right back to the question of narrative and the stories that we tell ourselves. And I'm thinking in particular of a passage in your book, White Lies, where you're dealing with a group of pastors and you're talking about the question of the Great Commission, going out and make, making disciples. And in that story, you're talking about one pastor in particular who is saying basically, you know, it's great to talk about all this racial stuff in the past, but really we don't need to be distracted. We need to get back to just making sure that we're caring for the souls of the people in our congregations. And in the process of telling this story, you talk about a shift that you observe that pastor make as as that pastor begins to confront these various aspects of our own complicity. History is not history. History is right now. And just, I, I wonder if you could walk our listeners just briefly through that kind of transformation when someone goes from having a defense saying, that's the history and I'm not part of that, to actually understanding that they are caught up in this too. Yeah. Thank you. 
how and where somebody's doing this work, I do think makes a difference. I think it's needed everywhere, right? White supremacy manifests itself in so many different ways. So we need so many places where we're combating it. Part of where my mind is going is like in two different places, right? Um, one is like, I, I love, especially when people in like professional settings, and I'm not trying to like make that more valuable than somebody else, but there's like one kind of aha when somebody in a professional setting understands how deep the lie goes. You may remember this story in the book too, but you know, I'm thinking of a, a session we did with kind of a leadership incubator here in Chicago. And there's a white banker who was very, who thought himself was very woke. And he was very um, irritated by the notion that he needed to be sitting in this session about white supremacy. But we kept talking through this narrative of racial hierarchy idea. And like a light bulb went off for him, like, oh, this isn't about me proving to everybody that I'm woke as an investment banker. This is about me saying investment banking is dominated by this lie, just like every field Right. And so how do I go back to work, not trying to prove to everybody that I'm a woke white guy? How do I go back to work and say, I'm going to be on the front lines of this charge and say, I'm going to be honest about everywhere this lie exists. And it's not about me presenting myself as the on the right side of this thing. It's about me getting past what I, how I even look and about saying this lie has got to be uprooted. Right. Like those are super meaningful because it gives me a renewed sense of confidence that a critical mass could form within the different professional sectors to really begin to identify and root out the lie. It's a really different feeling for me when people of faith, particularly faith leaders, have this conversion because. Again, the, the similarities, I think for a lot of us who are white, you know, the worst thing we can imagine is being called a racist. So we're doing everything we can to prove that we're not racist, that we're on the right side, which I think just completely undercuts everything that needs to happen. When a white faith leader can realize just how deep this lie goes and then can come in contact with the, the historical reality in America that Christianity was so complicit in not only just turning a, uh, away from the lie, but even creating theology to support the lie. That position is going to do what they should have always been doing in the first place, what they've been trained to do as a religious leader, which is right, the Christian tradition always starts with repentance and confession. Right? It doesn't ever start with saying, come to God and prove how valuable you are so that God can say, wow, you're a good one. Come with me. Right. You always come to God and say, it's by your grace alone. Right. It's, it's my own record. It's never going to be enough. And so it's through confession and repentance that we receive the grace of God. And this is what we need a critical mass of white religious leaders in particular to do is not to just confess individually for ways they've been complicit, though I think that's helpful too, but to join the chorus who can historically confess and repent to the reality that white Christianity in particular has been so complicit in allowing for this lie to survive and thrive generation after generation. And so that's where the joy comes from when a white religious leader gets it. I'm like, all right, we're one more step closer now to what I hope will someday be a critical mass. I mean, we're obviously a long way away from that. But I think that's where we're going to start to feel the change is when a critical mass of us are able to begin this conversation with confession and repentance about how apathetic and indifferent we've been to the surviving and thriving of this lie from generation to generation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Daniel Hill. We're talking about his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Well, we started out the conversation naming the fact that we were creating in our dialogue here a space that was white-centered and male-centered and heteronormative. And in your response just now, you're talking about 
the moments when those who hold those kind of power centers can step away from being the center of the story, the center of the conversation, and they can allow the experience of those who have been oppressed, African Americans, other people of color, to be the center of the story. But there's a lot of there's a lot of resistance to that decentering. And and so I want to bring us back again to this dynamic that we're talking about. You and I are two white males who are having this conversation about race. How can we, even in spaces like this, begin to decenter our narrative, decenter ourselves from the story, and begin to place at the center those for whom Jesus said in Matthew 25 we should be most concerned, the least of these among us? Yeah. I mean, I, I would circle back to, again, one of the earlier conversational points. The only way I know how to do it is to submit myself to established, credible leaders of color who I'm like, they're clearly at the center. Like they've got a vision for how things can change. They've got a message for what can happen. And they're inviting me to participate in their work. You know, so even though it's you and I talking right now, I don't see myself centered. <laughs> like I see myself sent by that group as I'm sure you've got your own sources that do that for you. And they'll listen to this and they'll give me feedback on it. And they'll say, I like this part. You should say that more. And I think you could have said this part differently. And if you're going to be representing us when you have conversations like this, you need to highlight this, right? And so be held accountable on this conversation. And for me, that that helps make it clear that this isn't about me or my agenda. This is me um, serving the agenda of those who I happily submit to and surrender to the work that they're doing. There's a point in your book, White Lies, where you say in a confessional moment that you sometimes get cynical in this work. Sometimes you feel pulled down in this work. And so Help us to understand uh, those moments when you are feeling pulled towards cynicism. What is it that brings you back? What is it that brings you back and sustains you and gives you the strength to keep coming at this perennial question? Honestly, it's really particularly African-American members in my church community. When I want to quit and give up, I realize like there's actually a lot of privilege in that, right? Like I can kind of feel the sense of I give up and then just go back to normal life. And then I look at them and they want to quit too, but they can't. Right? They got to go back to work the next day. They got to like send kids out into the world, right? And so oftentimes in like tears, I'll say, I can't, I not only for my own self, my own sake of survival and thriving, but for my kids and for their kids, like we have to keep fighting this. Like we just can't take losing can't be an option, right? We can't keep passing this down from generation to generation. So when I hear that, I, I just immediately go, man, what, boy, that was sure was a privileged thing to kind of like get all sulky and sullen and kind of go inward. Like I'm back in it with like whatever, whatever they're doing. So I like, try to move this thing. Like I'm raising my hand saying, if I can play a role, I am here. I am not going to, I'm not going to slow down on this thing. Right. It's like the fight of our law of our day, I think. And so it's just that inspiration of seeing like what is required, particularly black America. And I go, I realize it affects many other people too, but particularly black America, going to the assault of white supremacy all the time, as we've just seen kind of in this recent state of things again, that's just what they have said. We, we have to find a way to change this. And so I follow their lead. You've been at this work for a number of years and I wonder if you're comfortable what has this work gained for you? What have you gained from this work? And what has this work cost you? I have gained a lot. Um, I can see the way I've gained a lot, which is just another way I just feel so privileged in this. As you know, in the book, I emphasize a lot of just kind of the journey moving from blindness to sight and being in these kind of conversations with people who just see the world so much more clearly than I do, see themselves so much more clearly than I do. I never realized the degree to which white supremacy impacts my own sense of self. I didn't realize the way it blinds me to so much of how the world works. So I feel so fortunate to kind of be 
guided and mentored by so many really seasoned and wise voices. And, um, you know, I look at like the kind of cultural context I used to be in. I'm like, man, I would never have become who I am today if I was just kind of in those echo chambers all the time. And so I'm just profoundly thankful that there's these people who have kind of invested in me and allowed me to come with them as they do their work and help them see the world differently. On the cost side, I mean, it's, it's, I grew up in a family that would, I think, be very much characterized as the religious right now in terms of like extremities of how that's represented in the political landscape. And so, you know, most of my extended family thinks I'm pretty crazy. And, you know, I can't hardly make a comment on social media without being corrected by one of my former pastors or a family member or something like that, you know. And so those always sting a little bit. But I'm like, I'm almost hesitant to mention that because it's like the co- that cost is so minimal compared to what most people in this work are doing, you know, but that would be my honest answer. I think, I think the isolation from family and the judgment that comes from them is probably where I feel it the most. I hate to end on a negative note. So if there are listeners who are kind of struggling with these questions and they don't quite know where to begin, and maybe they have felt some stirrings of conscience, but like, like you've just named, there are some social pressures that might be holding them back. What would you say to encourage those that uh, maybe feel the pull towards anti-racism work, but haven't yet had the courage to step out and begin the process? I think there's all kinds of, there's a host of good reasons, answers to this from a non-religious perspective, and I would trust somebody to find those on their own. It's kind of one of the first questions you asked me. For me, the faith piece of this is so significant. I really do believe that how I've come to understand God in the Bible, you know, page one of the Bible is about the Imago Dei, the image of God, the fact that human beings are created in the image of God. So I think that's of the utmost importance to God, that human dignity is protected and fought for. And so I just, I've completely lost any sense of knowing how to be a Christian without signing up for anything that's attacking human dignity at any level. And of course, race is not the only place where that's happening. We just think that it's a uniquely powerful one. So for me, that's where my motivation always comes back to is like at the most basic level to love God and love neighbor. I don't even know how to do that anymore without confronting white supremacy. And so I, that's, it's, it's my, it's almost exclusively my faith that kind of drives me to continue moving forward in that journey. Well, Daniel Hill, I just want to say I'm so grateful for your taking time today to speak to us. Your book, White Lies, for obvious reasons, I've been doing a lot of reading around anti-racism work over these past months, and I am so thankful to have this as a resource to share with those in my community, particularly other people that, as we've said, identify as white and male and heterosexual or are coded that way. And it, it gives a real way of entering into the conversation, and it doesn't pull its punches. It is very honest about what the resistances are and how to meet those resistances. I want to thank you, first of all, for the work you've been doing for these many years and for the time that it took to write this book. But I also want to thank you for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you, Dave. That means so much. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. And it's a real honor to participate with you in this conversation today. We've been speaking today with Daniel Hill. He's the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church in Chicago, Illinois. He's the author of the books White Awake, An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White, and 10 Out of 10, Life to the Fullest. Today we've been discussing his recent book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. 
Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>